When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the unexpected things that shape us and how we can shape the future. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and in each episode, I take something that seems concerning or confusing today and figure out where it came from, what important things were missing, and how we can create more opportunity tomorrow. Do you think you're a good writer? I mean, maybe you do. So here's another question. Do you think the people around you are good writers? The people you work with? The people you went to school with? Maybe, let's be honest, your friends and family. Can these people write? I bet you think the answer is no. And you are not alone. It is commonly noted that young people today don't write as well as older generations. That's the first sentence in a Washington Post story. It was written by an English teacher, and it came with the headline, The Real Reasons So Many Young People Can't Write Well Today. And this concern doesn't just apply to students. It is said about adults, too. Back in 2004, the New York Times even ran a story headlined, What Corporate America Can't Build? A Sentence. And it reported, Millions of inscrutable email messages are clogging corporate computers by setting off requests for clarification. And many of the requests, in turn, are also chaotically written, resulting in whole cycles of confusion. The piece cited a survey of 120 American corporations, which concluded that a third of employees in the nation's blue chip companies were bad writers. These businesses were spending more than $3 billion a year on basic writing lessons for their employees. Now, let's be clear about something. In many episodes of Build for Tomorrow, I set out to prove that a modern day concern should not be a concern at all. But here, there is no doubt. A lot of people cannot write. Even a accomplished professionals. You've seen it yourself. These people can barely string a sentence together. And who can we blame for this problem? Isn't that always what we want to know? Who is to blame? And here is where it gets interesting. There are, of course, no shortage of fingers being pointed. And if you want to hint at where they are pointing, well, you already heard it in that Washington Post story from a minute ago. Here, I'll refresh your memory. Young people today don't write as well as older generations. And the headline said, quote, Young people can't write well today. We are, as always, treating this as a today problem. We always hear that texting is a scourge. The idea is that texting spells the decline and fall of any kind of serious literacy, or at least writing ability, among young people in the United States and now the whole world today. That's from a TED Talk by the linguist John McHorder, who, to be clear, is summarizing the criticism of texting but not endorsing it. You want to hear what an endorsement sounds like? Well, just turn on a report from CBS 6 Albany. Our kids are texting faster than ever. Teachers are noticing a direct connection between an increase in texting and an increase in assignments handed back with errors. And on and on it goes like that. 
texting, tweeting, reading garbage on the internet instead of Shakespeare, word processors that correct our spelling and even our grammar. Pick a modern tool that in some way intersects with reading and writing, and you can find it being blamed for the decline in people's ability to write. And this feels logical because when we look backwards at pre-digital generations, we say, oh, behold the beautiful handwritten letters. Look at their timeless works of literature. The older generation, we believe, were simply better writers than we were because writing was a more integral part of their lives. And technology clearly ruined that, which makes sense until you look back at the complaints of those elegant and articulate pre-digital people. You don't actually have to go that far. In the 1970s, Newsweek put it on their cover. It was a cover story that screamed, Why Johnny Can't Write? And it claimed that, quote, the U.S. educational system is spawning a generation of semi-literates, end quote. But to see the real scope of this, let's go back a lot further to the words of a man born in 1831 who founded The Nation and was the editor-in-chief of the New York Evening Post from 1883 to 1899. So Edwin E.L. Godkin, who was one of the people who decried the illiteracy of American youth, wrote several well-known pieces at the time in which he listed all the evil influences, and that's his term, evil influences on poor writing. This, by the way, is Elizabeth Wardle, a professor of written communication at Miami University in Ohio. I will give her a fuller introduction later because you're going to hear a lot from her. But for now, what were those evil influences of the 1800s? Street slang, the bad writing in newspapers, popular novels. And he very specifically said, quote, the better the novel, the more evil its influence, the carelessness of teachers and the failure of our educational institutions. So right there at the beginning, that's a story that has not changed. But it gets even more interesting because this is not one of those things that, you know, have just been said since the beginning of time. It's not like a kids these days thing where you can find thousands of years worth of grumpy old people complaining about the younger generation. No, this complaint about writing has a start date, a specific time, a specific year when the complaints began when everyone decided that people today simply can't write. It's something Elizabeth stumbled upon as she began her academic career and was trying to understand why so many people are such bad writers. So even when I was writing my dissertation, I was thinking, how are we teaching writing and why are we doing that? And does it actually work? And so I set up a study to see what are we doing in this class and does it work? It, it didn't work. And then I started reading about why were we even doing it? And that took me back to the 1870s where I realized we've been doing it wrong since 1875, despite knowing that it doesn't work. 1875. It is that specific. So what happened then? That is what we're digging into in this episode of Build for Tomorrow. We're going to find the real culprit behind our bad writing, which isn't texting and it isn't tweeting and it isn't anything modern at all. Along the way, we will also see whether the past really had better writers than the present and whether history's most classic writers also wrote some real garbage. And very importantly, how we can finally solve this problem and create better writers now. That is all coming up after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again. Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh. There it is. Drawing board or... Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's won. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com. All right, we're back. So our ultimate destination here will be the year 1875. But before we get there, let's back up a little further to examine the caliber of writers that came before. Because, you know, if I asked you to think of writers before the year 1875, who would you think of? I know what you think of. You think of the greats, Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, Emily Dickinson. We can go back further. John Milton, Voltaire, Shakespeare, Homer, the authors of Greek tragedies. These are the kinds of people who we think of from the past. And we think they were full of more talent than the present. That something about their old times created the kinds of writers that last for generations. And I wondered, is that actually true? Because this is an important context for our evaluation of why people cannot write today. So I called up a very scholarly man to ask a very silly question. When we think of Shakespeare, we think of amazing writing. We think of they don't make them like they used to. Right. This was a person from back when who was flawless and created these timeless masterpieces. And I wondered, did Shakespeare write anything that scholars just consider to be kind of crap. <laughs> that laugh comes from an old friend of mine named Isaac. Hi, my name is Isaac Butler, and I am a writer and theater director based out of New York. Fans of Slate might recognize Isaac's voice from the podcast Working, where he is a co-host, or the Culture Gab Fest, where he is a regular. And also, if you're interested in acting, Isaac has an amazing new book coming out called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which none other than Nathan Lane said was, quote, the best and most important book about acting I've ever read, end quote. Wow. So anyway, Isaac said that, yes, scholars generally agree that Shakespeare wrote some crap. Three pieces of crap in particular. Timon of Athens, Mary Wives of Windsor, and Henry VIII. To be fair, though, Henry VIII was the last thing Shakespeare wrote, and scholars believe he didn't actually write all of it, probably just part of it. But anyway, it was a real disaster in every sense. There's a part in the play where cannons are fired, and one of them sort of misfired and lit the thatch roof on fire and the whole building burned down. Only one person died, but it actually destroyed the Globe Theater, the physical site of Shakespeare's greatest work and legacy. So Shakespeare went out with a bang. He really went out with a bang, yeah. But Isaac said, look, this doesn't really answer my question because if we want to understand whether the past was full of objectively better writing than the present, then we must understand why great writers from the past are considered great at all. And here, Shakespeare actually presents a useful case study. Because although none of what we are about to say takes away from Shakespeare's obvious and lasting talent, there's a bunch of different things that had to happen in order for Shakespeare to become 
Shakespeare. You know what I mean? In order for the sort of like deceased middle-aged playwright to become the the greatest writer of all time. One of them is, is that after his death, a group of his colleagues and friends had to get together and publish a folio edition of all of his plays. And they had to decide on what were the sort of quote-unquote definitive versions, because many of those plays, there's multiple different versions of them floating around. There's bootleg published versions of them. You know, authorship did not work the same way in late 16th, early 17th century England that it works today. For example, Shakespeare did not invent the plots of his plays. He stole the plots from other writers, which was fine at the time, totally acceptable. And also, a play back then was never really considered finished. It would be performed, improved upon, revised, performed some more, and this would go on for years. Shakespeare would make his own revisions, but also, and this is so hard to even imagine today, but other versions of his plays would be performed with revisions made by other people, which sometimes contained great new changes that would eventually be attributed back to him. And sometimes they contained eh, not so great things. So, you know, you take a play like Hamlet, there were multiple versions of Hamlet flying around in Shakespeare's time. It's unclear how much of a hand he had in publishing any of them. One of them is, in fact, called The Bad Hamlet by scholars. And there's some debate as to whether it's The Bad Hamlet because it's someone reconstructing the play from memory. Or if it's like, uh, you know, in the old days where someone would sit in the in the movie theater with a camcorder and record the movie. So maybe someone did that and transcribed it. To give you just an example of it, you know, the most famous line of Shakespeare is probably to be or not to be. That is the question in the bad Hamlet. It's uh, to be or not to be. That is the point. I mean, just imagine going to Broadway, settling into your expensive seat and realizing 30 minutes in that, ah, crap, we bought tickets to bad Phantom of the Opera. Although, let's be honest, isn't bad Phantom of the Opera just called Phantom of the Opera? So, okay, that's reason number one that Shakespeare becomes Shakespeare, because authorship back then was fuzzy and Shakespeare benefited from the best revisions. Then you've got a couple other reasons. For example, British colonialism sure helped because as the British forced their culture and language upon people across the globe, they presented Shakespeare as the pinnacle of the English language. And this created a continued scholarship of his work, which introduced it to successive generations. Also, Isaac says, let's not forget. Everything is timeless until it's not. You know, and there will be a day when these things that we consider great and timeless no longer feel that way anymore. There have been other works by other writers that have been considered timeless or classic or brilliant at points in the past, but then those works ran afoul of changing cultural norms, and they either stopped making sense to people, or their jokes or plot points felt too outdated, or they just became offensive. Shakespeare, in fact, has one of those. It's Taming of the Shrew. The the misogyny in it is almost impossible to explain away completely. You'll see productions where they try. And once you get rid of that, it's like a bunch of jokes from the 16th century that don't transfer that well. So there is a parallel universe in which William Shakespeare is a guy who's very talented and he's successful during his time. But then he dies and his friends don't put together a greatest hits version of his work and the British don't carry that book around the globe and he just becomes forgotten like so many peers whose works have been great but did not survive. Or, you know, many people whose works were very bad and did not survive. This is true of all time periods. For example, did you know that even as we consider Greek tragedy to be the origin of Western dramatic writing, we actually only have 32 surviving plays? We know of at least 10 writers of Greek tragedy, but 
only three of those playwrights, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, survive. So the the work of seven of those writers has been completely wiped out. Why did these three writers survive? We know that monks of the Middle Ages transcribed the surviving plays because it was a good way to learn classic Greek, but why those plays? Why not other plays? Did they just not like them? Were they bad? And even though we know of ten writers total, surely there were more. Dozens? Hundreds? Thousands of writers? All lost to time because why? We don't know. But here's what we do know. When we think of the great works of art from the past, we are experiencing a kind of survivor's bias. We see only the great works that survived, sometimes for reasons that had little to do with the great work itself, and we do not see all the regular, forgettable stuff that was indeed forgotten. Greatness is not inherent in a time. Greatness is what survives from a time. So, okay, all of that is really a caveat to our larger question, which is, why have people spent nearly 150 years complaining that kids today can't write and believing that something about their particular time has ruined the art of writing? It is now time to turn once again to Elizabeth Wardle with a more proper introduction. I'm Elizabeth Wardle. I work at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where I am the Roger and Joyce Howe Distinguished Professor of Written Communication, and I direct the Howe Center for Writing Excellence at the Howe's Endowed. Elizabeth is passionate about writing and how writing is taught. And as we heard before, she has pinpointed the source of our problems. For such a big and what feels like abstract problem, you have a specific date, 1875, <laughs> yeah. in which you identify everything going wrong. The, the apple of writing is, uh, is eaten by Eve in 1875. <laughs> what happens in 1875? So around 1875, the university started to change. Before that, it was very much an oral tradition. They were not asking students to read or write extensively in their native tongue. It was lots of sort of debate and declamation and all that sort of stuff. And that's because the people who went to college before 1875 were, well, they were pretty much all white, wealthy men who were being educated to be the American elite. You know, people went to college in order to be, you know, lawyers, preachers, gentlemen scholars. But then the world started to change. It became more industrial and urban. Work started to look more like we're familiar with work now, with jobs that required specialization. And printing technology became even cheaper, which meant that it was much more possible to access books and to send each other written communications. And all of this meant that workers needed to be more literate. So to prepare the modern worker for success, universities started to shift as well. They began asking students to write Harvard, right around 1875, created an entrance exam that required writing. And once Harvard did that, other universities followed. And that is when everyone discovered... The students are writing terribly. Why are they writing so terribly? And so there was this very specific moment where they could have said, oh, because we've never taught them to do this. But instead they said, our boys are illiterate and it's the fault of... And then there was a long list of things it was the fault of. And so instead of saying they're being asked to do something that we've never asked them to do before because there was no need, right? We were in an oral society. When they were reading and writing, it was often in Greek or Latin. So they, they suddenly had to do a thing they never had to do. And instead of saying, gosh, they're learners, we should teach them. They said, they're lazy, they're stupid, they don't know how to do this. Somebody has failed them. It's definitely not us. And so they, they totally missed an opportunity, and we have never recovered from that. 
I dug through newspaper archives from the time just to see how people failed to understand the problem, and it is pretty amazing stuff. For example, at a gathering of Massachusetts teachers in 1883, the president of something called the Agricultural College stood up to blame, quote, too much sentimentalism and too little solidity in common school education these days, end quote. A year later, the Boston Globe ran a story headlined, Better English. Educators told it is time to improve. This was coverage of another meeting of educators, where this time someone from the U.S. Census Bureau stood up and blamed what we would now call political correctness for the problem. Here's what that person said. Teachers who try to select good material are hampered by the antagonism men so generally have towards expressions conflicting with their ideas. Publishers making books for the universal market are compelled to cut out what might offend an adherent of any scientific, religious, or political idea until some books have no moral vitality. And in 1892, a Harvard committee that was tasked with solving the, quote, writing problem decided that it is... A little less than absurd to suggest that any human being who can be taught to talk cannot likewise be taught to compose. Writing is merely the habit of talking with the pen instead of with the tongue. But anyway, back to 1875. A minute ago, you heard Elizabeth Wardle say that schools totally missed an opportunity that we never recovered from. And here is what that opportunity was. She is again going to reference E.L. Godkin, a newspaper editor who was on the Harvard committee. Instead of saying, writing is becoming so complex in this increasingly specialized society where more people have access to literacy, this is really interesting, let's study it. He said, it's remedial, and if you can't do it, then you are a, quote, idler and lounger, one of his other great quotes, and you really need a remedial class. A remedial class. Harvard, the committee believed, should be in the business of teaching great literature, not helping students learn how to write. But if Harvard must teach them, then, ugh, fine. We're going to create a new class called English A. And it is a remedial composition class that will have to be taught by the least powerful people because who would want to teach a remedial composition class? And I guess what we'll do there is fix the most broken of the student writers Everyone else can just go ahead and go into their other classes. And then in the meantime, we will harass the earlier teachers to try to actually do their job better. That was the solution. The birth of first year composition or freshman comp, a class that is still around today and back then was treated with great disdain. And it gets worse from there. Harvard and other higher ed institutions started blaming K-12 schools for not teaching students how to write. And then K-12 schools were totally pissed and thought it was really higher ed's responsibility. And Elizabeth says this tension is still with us today. And because people across time have been so convinced that writing isn't actually that hard to teach, they have always been looking for easier and easier solutions, more versions of freshman comp. And that is in part why something called the theme essay became popular. Now, this is a form of essay that had been around long before 1875. It was basically a writing assignment in which students would write an essay using a very rigid structure around a certain theme. Now, to be fair, lots of people, even back then, understood this to be a bad idea. Someone named G.F. Graham wrote in 1842 that the theme is a form of composition never likely to be of much practical utility in afterlife. A knowledge of theme writing will be of no assistance in writing a letter or a description. Neither is it indispensable to the construction of a sermon or a moral treatise. 
And of course, you might recognize what they're talking about by now because theme writing evolved into the five paragraph essay that so many of us were taught in middle or high school. And then, of course, never, ever used again because G.F. Graham of 1842 was right. Now, to be fair, the five paragraph essay is generally considered to be a fine starting point for teaching kids how to formulate an argument. But the problem is schools often treat it not as a starting point, but as the end goal itself. So I like to talk about it in this way. There's well-structured problems and there's ill-structured problems. Well-structured problems have one right answer. Two plus two equals four. Ill-structured problems do not have a right answer. Every writing problem is ill-structured. There's a bunch of ways you can do it. Some of them will work. Some of them won't. They're more or less effective. But school really likes well-structured problems because they're so much easier to assess. So what you've just named there, the five-paragraph theme, is a great example of trying to take the ill-structured problems that always go with writing tasks and make it into a well-structured problem because I can assess it easily. Do you have five paragraphs? Do you have an intro? Do you have one sentence that names your three points? And do you summarize your three points at the end? That's a well-structured problem. But nothing in the world ever gives you a well-structured problem that you can usually solve with writing. Constructing the form of the essay, rather than encouraging students to focus on the content of their argument and then break out of the essay format to better serve the content, becomes the goal itself. Because, of course, writing is hard to teach and hard to grade. And let us be, like, super clear about that. The stuff is hard. But a simple five-paragraph form is easy. Easy to teach, easy to grade. And Elizabeth wants to be clear, this is not a teacher problem. First of all, I never blame teachers. I blame the system, right? And so we have been in a system since 1870 that misunderstands writing and misunderstands learning. And we are currently in what um, one of my colleagues calls the accountability regime, which is much more interested in a quick pre and post test that proves you've done your job than actually measuring any kind of meaningful student learning. Which means that a structure of writing becomes emphasized over the actual engagement of writing, which is a nice representative of the problem as a whole. So, to review, writing was not something we emphasized in education until the late 1800s, and then as soon as we did, we decided that young people were stupid for not having learned something that we did not teach them. Then everyone up and down the education ladder basically pointed their fingers and said, hey, you are responsible for teaching writing, not me. And so we narrowed the task and turned writing into a paint by numbers experience that could be efficiently taught and graded, but that had little practical application in the real world and that limited people's understanding and comfort and curiosity about writing and a dysfunctional system calcified and has been with us for so long that we still haven't managed to purge the mistakes of 150 years ago. And yet, because this is our way, we also still blame every new generation and every new tool that they have for not living up to the imaginary standards that we ourselves never met. So, what will solve that problem? That is the section I am going to write for you next, coming up after the break. All right, we're back. So, now that we've seen where writing went wrong, how can it go right? I will caveat up front, this is a subject of massive debate and endless books, and I cannot possibly summarize everyone's thoughts or arguments or TED Talks in the next few minutes. And also, progress has been made 
Lots of it. In the 1960s and 70s, researchers began studying how writing works and how people learn, and that birthed different fields of academic study and teaching, which in turn has created more progress. So consider what I'm about to say as just cracking open a door, the illustrating of what solutions look like. And I am going to dig into this from Elizabeth Wordle's perspective, because she has been shaping the way writing is taught at Miami University and has seen important results. But to really appreciate what she's doing and why she's doing it, I need to add one more detail to the original sin of writing. So as you'll recall, when freshmen arrived at college in the late 1800s and they could not write because, of course, they were stuck in a first year comp course taught by the lowliest people on campus, people who Elizabeth and her colleagues like to call the sad women in the basement. The sad women in the basement, the faculty wives, you know, whoever was stuck with it, were teaching what they knew how to teach, which was often literary genres. It was probably some sort of literary essay. It is certainly not in any way related to what you're going to be doing in science or engineering or social science. In other words, the first writing courses framed writing as a certain specific thing, a form of communication that looked and felt one way for one audience for one purpose taught in one field. And this is the heart of what Elizabeth thinks we need to fix. Not everyone will be great as an essayist. And that is fine, she says. In a specialized world with so many different forms of communication, we need to expand not just how we teach writing, but how we define writing. And we're going to look at this in a few ways. First, we'll talk about how writing is taught in grade school. Then we'll move on to what's happening in higher ed. And then how and why to expand the definition of writing. Let's start in K-12, through where again, just to stress, Elizabeth is not blaming teachers. She's blaming the system. What you need to do is help students love reading and writing and don't wreck it for them. Thomas Newkirk has done some really interesting studies about this multimodal drawing that young children do. And so as they're learning to read and write, they almost always are drawing and writing at the same time. Anything a kid does, it's like a picture and then maybe whatever word they're learning, which is the world that we're living in, right? Like Multimodality is everywhere, but there comes a point along the way where you take out the multimodal and you take out the visual and you start making them write in these five paragraph themes. So how about if we help them engage in literacy, broadly conceived, really enjoy it, write all the time, use drawing, use all kinds of technologies and really be excited about it. And it isn't like a thing you do in English class where your teacher corrects with a red pen, because we actually know that's not, in fact, how you improve. You need to write a lot for real reasons to audiences who are not interested in your errors, but interested in your ideas. And so I think teachers could do that if the system rewarded them for doing that. In hearing this, I thought back to my own experience. So quick thing about me, I make my living in one way or another as a writer. I write books, magazine stories, podcasts, talks, and back in high school, I even wrote a blog before the word blog existed. This was at members.aol.com for you old timers. And I wrote for a local music magazine. So you might think I excelled at school writing. But no, I did not. I hated writing in school. I found it insulting and infantilizing, and I could find no compelling reason to treat it seriously. And that is because of what Elizabeth said above. You need to write for real reasons. To me, writing was a real thing that could reach real people. And uh, who was I reaching in school? I knew that I had an audience of one, and that, that, that audience didn't seem to matter. It didn't matter to me. All right. 
And that audience isn't interested in what you have to say. They're looking at errors. It doesn't make any sense because you never say, so if you read something in a magazine, you don't say to your friend, I can't wait for you to read this. You know why? It's error free. Never. <laughs> right. Like that's not why you're excited about something you read, but that's what we're doing to our students. So how about if we get excited about what they have to say and then give them a chance to revise during which time most of their errors will actually disappear. Elizabeth has a wonderful phrase that she used a bunch when we spoke. It is this writing mediates activity. That is the point of writing, she says. In the real world, writing is for some purpose. It drives action. But in school, it does not. And that's a problem to fix. I had a student say once, I've never written to an audience before. I've only written to a rubric. That's mm. terrible. Like, that's horrible. Writing mediates activity. If you are going to give an assignment to your student, what activity is writing mediating? And if it's only and ever proving what you know, like, okay, there's some places for that, but isn't it more interesting to give them assignments that mirror what happens in the world when writing is mediating activity? So as an example, I had a colleague who was teaching a world religions class, and he's like so bored with all these essays that students are turning in. And I said, well, where in the world do people actually write about these issues? And he showed me a magazine, Christianity Today. I said, do we need to talk about this anymore? And he was like, no, no, I know what to do. He went back. They all found a magazine. They all wrote articles for the magazine. One of them was the editor. One of them was the layout person. They made a magazine and then they wrote for real reasons, right? That was not pseudo transactional. There is no reason that we can't be doing that, but it's not how we're trained to think. We just assign what was assigned to us. And this is a window into the larger thing that Elizabeth is doing at Miami University, which itself is part of a national movement called Writing Across the Curriculum. The idea is to get professors and students who are outside the traditional essay writing English classes to engage with the idea of writing, to think of what they do as writing. Because the thing is, most people do not think of themselves as writers, even though they're writing all the time. So lots of my students who say they're not writing, the first thing we do is an inventory. It, you know, every place you write and all the things you write in a week that have nothing to do with school. Oh, they're writing. They're writing all the time. But most of that stuff doesn't even get counted as writing or named as writing. And so they say, oh, yeah, I'm a fan fiction writer. I write thousands of words a week. I'm not a writer, right? Because that's not rewarded in school. So if we could help them see all the kinds of writing that matter, they might say, I'm not a very good essay writer, but I am great at lab reports and fan fiction. Then great that you don't feel bad because you're not a bad writer. You're better at one thing than another. And we teach them that you can always improve because writing is not something you're just born able to do. Where do you think that student's mentality comes from where they don't believe that they're writing, even though they are? Well, one answer is obviously 1875, but I'd say it is still being reintroduced and emphasized to every new successive generation in ways that sound like, well, I mean, let's take a listen to this old thing again. Our kids are texting faster than ever. Teachers are noticing a direct connection between an increase in texting and an increase in assignments handed back with errors. What if the problem, and stay with me here, what if the problem isn't texting? What if the problem is, in part at least, the belief that texting is a problem? I mean, okay, let's take this at face value for a moment. Students are texting. Students are writing badly. 
Is this a correlation or causation? Probably correlation because the problem existed long before texting did. But anyway, let's set that aside and look at the situation from a student's perspective. The student texts with their friends. They understand the rules and formats of that mode of communication, and they are rewarded for it with a robust social life. Like Elizabeth says, writing mediates activity. Then they come to school and writing does not mediate activity. Writing is a task presented with rigid rules where the purpose of the task is to be error-free. And to be clear, many of these rules are, of course, important. Grammar and syntax and organizing thoughts is all very important to learn. But always, always, as students are learning these rules, they are begging for an answer to the question, why does this matter to me? What will I do with these rules? And the answer The answer that I got as a student and the answer that I am quite certain many students are getting today is that they must perform these rules for evaluation, which is not a very compelling answer. So the student is taught something and it is this. Writing is a thing that is hard and unpleasant and not relevant to your lives. So what does the student do? Well, they continue to write in the ways that engage them. Maybe that's just texting to start. Maybe other things. Maybe they write TikTok sketches and song lyrics and fan fiction, but they don't consider any of that writing. And they certainly aren't rewarded for it in school, which means they don't engage with the lessons of communication that they have learned and maybe even taught themselves in this other form of writing that they like, which means they never extract those lessons and discover what parts of them are transferable to other forms of writing. Because yes, writing a TikTok sketch actually can inform the way you write other things because that's how writing works. A TikTok sketch teaches you, I don't know, efficiency and pacing and building of information, but the student will not make that bridge. They will instead consider themselves to be a bad writer because writing is a thing that they were told they're bad at. So how do you counter that? It starts by teaching the teachers, and that is what Elizabeth is doing at Miami University. Part of the way that we've done it is by saying, faculty, it's not as bad as you think. You can actually do this and we're going to help you and we're going to pay you to come and spend a semester learning what you actually already know. And so we spend the semester with them. They have to come in teams because if you come alone, then you're just that one weird person who wants to change everything in your department. They have to come in teams and then they have to work with teams who are different than them. And so part of what we do is have them figure out what they already know about writing and how they use it and see how what they do is different than what you know, the guys in mechanical engineering are doing, and then say, now, how do you apply this to your own department? So the best example I can give you is that the economist came and the economist said, we don't write. And there's a writing requirement. We don't like it and we don't want to do it. So the first thing that happened is that we started listing everything that they do in a given week. And they were like, oh yeah, okay. We write all the time. But a lot of this stuff we didn't really realize was writing because charts and graphs and explanations of charts and graphs, that's writing. So as soon as they realized that, they also realized that I and my colleagues in English could not teach that for them because we don't do that. And so then they were like, wait, this is totally ours to do. We actually don't want you to do it. And we need to put it not just in one class, but across every class that we teach. They went back to their department and did that. They created a sequence of courses in their major where they ensured that in every single class, students understood that what they were doing with symbols and econ was writing and that they needed to get good at it or they would be failures as economists. That's what people need to do, right? The faculty need to do that. And then when the students do it, what I'm seeing there is that they will say when you interview them, well, I'm not very good at writing essays, 
but I'm a really good geologist and I'm really good at writing to other geologists and explaining what we've learned. And I'm pretty excited about that because I can't be a geologist without doing that. And so it totally changes everybody's attitude. And I think that the attitude's actually half the problem. It's, you think it's something horrible that you can't do. And as soon as you realize that's not the case, everything opens up to you. Remember earlier when Elizabeth said that there are two kinds of problems? There are well-structured problems and ill-structured problems, and well-structured problems are the ones that have an answer, like a specific, undisputable one answer. Two plus two is four. That's it. That's the answer. Ill-structured problems have no singular answer. And she said every writing problem is an ill-structured problem. And what I like about her work and everything she just described about how she's teaching teachers is that it is an ill-structured solution. It isn't mind-blowing. It isn't some magic formula. It allows for infinite possibility and variation. The great mistake we made in 1875, which we have not corrected today, is that we tried to make a complex problem seem very simple. And this is not a writing problem or an 1875 problem. This is an everything problem. Just look around. This is politics and moral outrages and pretty much every complex problem that gets pinned on a boogeyman. In the case of writing, it just happens to be street slang and popular novels in the 1800s and texting and tweeting today. I have said it before on my show and I will say it again. When we simplify problems, we inhibit our ability to identify meaningful solutions. Because if texting is the problem, then the solution is just to get rid of texting. Simple, right? But that doesn't solve the problem. The great lesson of writing is that when you discard all the lazy answers, when you take history into account, when you see that we've been complaining about the same thing for more than a century, when you really start to take seriously the problem you can find creative and meaningful and ill-structured solutions. Solutions that allow for and even embrace all the complexities of the world. Solutions that say, let's build something for the world we are in now, rather than the world as we imagine it to be. Solutions are possible. Write it down. And that's our episode. But hey, one last thing. We talked earlier in this episode about how crappy writing from the past is often forgotten and all we remember are the great things. Well, I have one more funny reminder of that. It is a teeny weeny reminder, if you will. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But first, have you experienced rapid change over the last year? It may sound scary. It may feel scary, but it doesn't have to be. Sign up for my newsletter, which is also called Build for Tomorrow, where I show you how to turn change into opportunity. You can get it by going to jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Again, J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.bulletin.com. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can do so at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I am at heypfeiffer. This episode was reported and written by me, Jason Pfeiffer, sound editing by Alec Bayliss. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The actor you heard reading those old newspapers was Gia Mora. You can learn more at giamora.com. Thanks to Adam Sokolich for production help, to Matthew J. Nunez, whose paper on theme writing was helpful during this research, and to James Cerrone, a listener of this show, for first turning me on to Elizabeth Wardle's work. This show is supported in part by the Charles Koch Institute. The Charles Koch Institute believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that's you, then get in touch with them. 
proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit cki.org. Again, that is cki.org. All right. Now, as promised, when Isaac Butler and I were talking about the idea of survivor bias, which is to say how we associate the past with great works of art because we never see the garbage that was forgotten, I told him how it reminds me of how so many people will say something like, oh, the music of the 1960s was so much better than any crap we have today, to which Isaac said, if you're talking about the early 60s, there's also the the novelty song movement. There's a period of time where popular music is, um, how much is that doggy in the window, the itsy bitsy, teeny weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. I mean, you would be surprised if you went back and looked at how big the novelty song movement was. There's a few years where it's just, it's actually just a fire hose of crap. But that's not what we think about when we think of the 60s. We think of the Beatles. And just to be clear... This reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1966. They're coming to take me away, haha. They're coming to take me away, ho ho, hee hee, haha, to the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time. I mean, what can you say about that? I guess here's what you can say it is writing. Not good writing, but writing. Anyway. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow.